There's another podcast you should be listening to, TED Health, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts and breaks down the health questions you didn't know you had. Learn more about the way your body works and the newest insights changing the medical world, like what a smart bra means for better heart health, three ways to prepare for the next pandemic, and how we can all live healthier lives. Find TED Health wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Zuzi. She has pelvic congestion syndrome. Let's talk about it. Uh, We are hanging out with our new friend, Zuzana. um, AKA? AKA Zuzi. And uh, we are going to be talking about something that I don't think we've ever talked about on the show, pelvic congestion syndrome. And uh, I'm not going to lie, that sounds not good. Yeah, and probably not the same kind of like pelvic congestion that I get every morning around 9.45 after <laughs> I drink, after I have coffee. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, so you're talking about... Um, <clears throat> Shitting yourself. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Zuzi, what uh, can you, what is pelvic congestion syndrome? What, what is that? Yeah, so it's like something totally different. It's a vascular issue. So um, it's basically like the main symptom is pain, chronic pelvic pain that occurs for like longer than six months. And so that's why it's often mistaken for like endometriosis or adenomyosis or all those kind of gynecological right. issues, uh, but it's a vascular issue. So it needs to be dealt by like vascular surgeons or interventional radiologists. And that's why it's so hard to receive proper treatment because like when you have pelvic pain and you're a woman, you don't really think of a vascular surgeon as the first person you see. Mm-hmm. And by vascular, yeah. like like blood flow, like issues with blood flow to your pelvis or organs around you? Yeah, your... like, you know what vas- uh, what varicose veins are on yeah. the legs? Yeah. So it's yeah. basically the same thing, but it's not outside, it's like inside. Oh, and wow. like I had varicose veins on my uterine venous plexus, and my, this was because my left ovarian vein was dilated, so it was like a few times uh, wider than normal. And because of the reflex in my left ovarian vein, the other veins also got dilated, and that's what why it's so painful. Whoa! Okay, okay. I, I was Fuck, uh, just the other day, maybe I don't know, maybe a week ago. Uh, I was standing in line somewhere, and so- somebody in front of me had varicose veins on their leg. And I grew up; my dad had a lot of varicose veins on his leg, and I was really young. He got them. He got them like he got them like sucked out or. Oh, really? Some type of treatment for it. They take them away. I, I don't. I can't remember how they do it. But I've seen a video where they inject you with a needle oh, around the it. area, and then they kind of like, like I don't know what it is, but they pump you like with like a saline or something, and it you can see them visibly just go. Oh wow! And they like disappear. So Whoa. I was so I was wondering. Yeah. I was thinking to myself, what the fuck is a varicose vein? I can't. Like, what does it do? What is it? Mm. What's the problem with it? So we talked to somebody on the podcast about. Did, varicose veins. Uh, yeah, may, yeah, maybe a long, long, time, long ago. time ago. So, so what is a var? I mean, I'm I'm assuming you kind of you know the ins and outs of a varicose vein because that's I guess what you've you've got that we just can't see it. Yeah. So I mean, it's just a dilated vein, 
and it's painful. Like uh, on their legs, it's easy. Like there are, I think, over 20 different methods of dealing with varicose vines on the legs. But there are like just a few of dealing with varicose vines inside. Oh, okay. And they are pretty easy to manage when you eventually find out that you've got them. But like, the worst symptom is pain. And I think that I don't have varicose vines on my legs, but I think that if you have them, it's painful also. Mm. Yeah. So, so the, I mean, where do we begin? I mean, you, so you, I, I can only imagine that having this, this sort of disorder is a fucking hard to get diagnosed. Um, because, you know, speaking to people in the past, uh, especially women who have, have been diagnosed with things like, um, a- any kind of pelvic pain, you know, any kind of like endometriosis, some, something within the realm of the, the, um, the organs surrounding reproduction. It, it's like, it's always, a, at least it seems, it's always this crazy journey to get diagnosed with something of that disorder. Um, can, we, can we roll, like kind of reel it back to the beginning moments of where you started to notice that you were, you were having issues within the area of your pelvis. Like when did this all begin for you? Yeah. So, you know, like there's this saying among chronically ill people, imagine that one day you wake up sick and you never get better. So I can't remember like the exact day, but I remember that it was in May, 2019. So a bit over two years ago. And I just started to have like bloating. I now know that it's not exactly bloating it's more like swelling of my abdomen Mm, and I got chronic pelvic pain Uh, but this was like two months before I was supposed to go to the school of the New York Times like you know 17 years old uh, all alone going to America entering like a totally new environment so I was obviously stressed and my mom would blame like all of my symptoms on stress so she said that if I didn't get better like by the end of the summer, we would then see a doctor. Uh, and actually, when I went to New York, I had the worst flare up that I had like at that point of my illness. So on the very first day, you know, of this course that I was so excited about and the course that costed me so much money, I had to meet like a panel on investigative journalism because I was in so much pain that I actually couldn't stand up straight, which was super stressful. Oh, God. Um, and then like throughout this whole course, I had this terrible pain and nausea and everything. And that was also because stress is not the main cause of my illness, but it kind of increases the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Right. So I came back and I had like an internship for a month and it involved a lot of sitting. So again, the pain was there and it was quite a busy summer. I had some other summer camps, so I was like super painful all the way. And then in September, I went to see like a first doctor. And because I had like some symptoms also kind of, being similar to IBS, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, Mm -hmm. Uh, we went to see like a gastrologist. And he was the very first doctor that I went to see regarding my chronic illness. And he was the first one because of whom I experienced medical gaslighting. Because he asked me from which school I was. And I attended like the best high school in my country. So he said, you know, I have a lot of kids from the school with their belly just aching. So he kind of looked down on me and blamed it all on stress and kind of my mental condition. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Wait, yeah, but so, he, it, yeah. so like he was gaslighting you in the sense that 
um, he was saying that like kids from that school are sort of like softer or weaker or like tend to have more problems around stress or something like that. Is that what he was doing? I wouldn't say that. Uh, I would say that he was more blaming it on the pressure at school, the pressure to be successful, you know, doing all those academic competitions and stuff. But, you know, this this thing that blaming it all on the stress and on the kind of mental background is like the worst thing that you can do. And it's the last thing that you do when you try to diagnose a patient with chronic pain. Like you need to first exclude all mm, the mm. physical uh, possible reasons and then you right. need to exit. To, you and know, then you gaslight them. The <laughs> <laughs> gaslight them after. Can somebody, can somebody give me personally, I, gaslighting is a term that I've heard a lot over the past like, especially over the past year. And I'm, I'm like, I'm, I feel every time I hear the word, I feel like I know it. And then I, and then I second guess myself. What is the, it's, it's essentially, it's essentially dismissing someone's, uh, thoughts and, and basically trying to make them believe, uh, in something that make them believe in something that they, they haven't said or they haven't felt it's it's like that, making them second guess reality. Yeah, like yeah, dis, uh, yeah okay. not believe yes. the yeah. reality of the situation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's that's like that's along the lines of what I of what mm-hmm. I thought. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I just wanted to make sure that I was mm-hmm. on the same page. Yeah. So in this case, you know, you go in and you're saying, "I have, I'm having this internal issue that's that I can feel pain in my pelvic area," and the doctor's going, "No, no, no, no. You think." that you're experiencing pain in your pelvis, but really this is just, you just, you're just stressed. Trust me. I would know. There's I'm a the doctor. Yeah. At this school, yeah. And, so. and Zuzi, when you, when he, when the doc did that, were you like, were I, you, were you like, am I, is it in my head? Like, did it make you, did it make you question whether, you know, were you like, am I making this shit up and I don't even know it? No, I actually never questioned it. Although my whole family and my friends, they would all say that it's because of stress and be, and that it's all in my head or that I was exaggerating. But I kind of always reacted to stress in a different way. I had like neurological issues, was dizzy and had migraine headaches, but I never had pel- pelvic pain. So I would think like, no, this is something new, something mm. that I never experienced before. Mm. So I never second guessed myself. But that, that's yeah, kind of ahead. but that's kind of one of the annoying things about when like if a if a doctor or medical professional does that to you and sort of dismisses your your symptoms, especially in this case, but then your family because of their status and you know their role in the healthcare system start to go, well, you know, the doctor said that it's just stress or it's just pressure from mm-hmm. being at the school or whatever. Then then like then even if you still believe it, it's really frustrating when you don't have the support of the people around you because they're second guessing. Yeah, and then in turn, just making it that much harder to actually come down with a, a proper diagnosis. Yeah. I, so you were saying this happened in 2019, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is around the time of like your your last year of high school, going into your first year of university, right? Yes, September 2019 was when I no. Was it 2019 or 2020? It was 2019. September 2019 was when I started my senior year in high school. So along with, you know, preparing for my final final exam and trying to just which uni I, I would go. So I was in this whole process of diagnosing my chronic symptoms right. and they were getting worse and worse. And your, what is your home country? Poland. Poland. And you, uh, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm, I've been made aware that you are... Um, 
uh, I mean, through what you've said, but also through the, the pre-interview doc here that you were like kind of killing it academically. Um, you, you were, you know, getting incredible grades and, and had aspirations of, of getting into journalism. Um, how, how much did this experience of, of going through this health issue kind of fuck with your, your future plans for within academia? So it actually didn't affect my career at all. And I was like super lucky because the pandemic started. I mean, it, it sounds weird, but uh, I started working full time for the newspaper um, in June 2020. So I had this wonderful opportunity to work from home so I could just wear my tracksuit and interview people via Zoom. I didn't need to be out and about walking when it was actually painful and hard. So that was great because I could continue writing or even write from my bed, but I was still like active and this is what kept me going. And academically, like the year, the year that was the most difficult one for me in terms of my chronic pain and chronic illness and all those other issues, doctor appointment and stuff, was actually the year when I was the most successful because I was despising it for like a long time. You know, I was, um, I didn't allow myself to rest. I kind of didn't want to acknowledge that I was sick, that I was having some issues and I just kept pushing, but it's really cost me a lot in terms of my mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. No doubt. Now, did, did you not um, take a, you did a program with the New York times, right? Yeah. Did this, uh, what was, I mean, first of all, what was that experience like for you? Uh, what, what was, what entailed in that, that program? Um, and, and how did your, how did your illness have any effect on that? If any, uh, so that was a wonderful course and like an experience that changed my life. Honestly, I still have, I still am friends with the people I met there. And like, it was also very useful. Like we had classes with people who actually work with the New York Times and we visited the Associated Press for like a morning meeting with their mm. correspondents from all over the world. We visited the New York One News and then the New York Times. So mm. we also interviewed people in the streets and it was like really interesting and I loved it and I loved New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Poland, it was like a big thing that I went there because it was super expensive. I got a scholarship and, you know, I was the only Polish person who actually was there. Um, so then they interviewed me about that for like a local magazine of female empowerment or something like that. And then I was interviewed for this book uh, by like a Polish educational journalist, um, which is titled Young Power, 30 Stories of Young People Who Are Changing the World. And we were promoting the book from May 2020 alongside with like uh, other people featured in the book. And, you know, we constantly had meetings with, I don't know, children in class or like meeting with, you know, just the audience promoting the book. And they were asking us questions from where we drive our motivation and we were trying to inspire them. And I was, you know, I like to say that I was promoting the book Young Power when I was you know, the most powerless I've been in my life. Mm. I kept just pretending that everything was fine. So that's the way that I think it corresponds with the trip to the New York Times. And also, you know, I was only talking about the positive aspects of my stay in New York. So the wonderful friends and uh, super interesting classes, but it was also like so much pain and Mm -hmm. yeah, nausea, like being bloated all the time. So that was like the difficult part that I never talked about before. Because that was was the time um, in May 2019 that you were talking about when you went to New York and it was just starting to ramp ramp up there. That was like just at the start of when you were starting to like really experience the pain 
um, and symptoms, right? And when, when, like, you know, you said that you kind of, you buried it down a little bit and powered on and sort of put the, the pain and everything in the back seat and kind of worked. What was there a, was there a moment? Was there a, 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 an experience, something that really kind of jolted you into needing to take care, needing to address the pain more full on? I mean, I was trying to address the pain all the time, like alongside with all the things that I was doing. But uh, in terms of my mental health, in the moment of like the explosion, Mm. uh, it was in January 2021, so this year, uh, when I got the CT scan and, you know, the imaging was supposed to show us everything. And I was referred to the CT scan by a vascular surgeon eventually, who has experience with dealing with PCS, so pelvic congestion syndrome. And then suddenly on the CT scan, they said that I have like a uterine arteriovenous malformation, which is like a super rare thing. I mean, it's impossible to diagnose, to misdiagnose somebody with such a rare condition because there are like 150 recorded cases in the entire world. Whoa. Whoa. And like in the Facebook group that I joined, there are like 400 ladies only. So it's like super rare. And the radiologist who reviewed my CT scan He just, I don't know, maybe he never heard of pelvic congestion syndrome. So he just mistook it for something much less common, like super rare. And, you know, AVM and arterial venous malformation can rupture. And like, if they don't manage to help you, you die within like minutes. Oh, wow. So this is the moment when the pressure was like super bad. And also my doctor kind of was not the fastest one fastest one in terms of communication so I sent him my results and he wouldn't respond and then I was waiting and waiting and you know thinking of myself bleeding out any moment and also they because of the pandemic and kind of this shortage of staff they closed the war the hospital department of vascular surgery in my city so I knew that like we won't make it to another city if I start bleeding so it was super stressful. And then I also had like an exam session at university. Mm. Mm, so I was stressful about, stressed about the exams also. And then, yeah, I think like this is when my depression started to kick in. So I would sleep throughout the whole day and like just cry all the time. And I had terrible problems with concentration. So mm, this mm. is when I kind of felt that I need to s- seek help. How how did you end up getting the diagnosis? Like who who eventually stepped in and was like, uh, okay, I fucking know what's going on here. I've seen this before. Okay, so I uh, sort of I'm not the most patient person, so <laughs> uh, I message like other doctors who are like they are not vascular surgeons, but they are interventional radiologists. And they have this website when they, where they write like a lot of about pelvic congestion syndrome and also arteriovenous malformations. So I was like, I should reach out to them and ask them because even though they live, they work like six hours from where I live, um, but I still message them. Um, and they actually responded within like two weeks. And they also said that it is an AVM, that is, this is this malformation. And they scheduled a surgery and embolization. And I was waiting for the surgery, you know, preparing myself mentally. And I called them like a week before it was scheduled uh, just to ask if it was still on because of the third wave of COVID. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment when they actually said, you know, we actually 
started doubting if it's really the IVM, so we should <laughs> like get you here for an MRI and review you again. So that's when I got like another imaging and they said, okay, it's not an IVM, it's pelvic congestion syndrome. And they uh, like, they treated it. Wow. Whoa. Well, wow so crazy. they thought for the longest time that it was, or I guess not really the longest time, but they thought initially that it was an Any AVM. Yeah. So I was misdiagnosed with the AVM for like three months. Right. And the AVM is, if you did have it, they're they're looking at it as like you need to fix this a ticking time ASAP. Mom. This needs to be you need sur- you need surgery because you said you said if it is AVM, there's a, something that could rupture and you could die. You could die. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not like um, I mean they didn't actually tell me that I can die because maybe they didn't want to scare me. Right. But everywhere on the internet, there were those women sharing the stories of them, you know, nearly bleeding out to death. So. Uh, they were pretty fast. I mean, they scheduled mm. the surgery as soon as they could. And also what I really like about those doctors, is like mm, how understanding they were. Mm. You know, I told them mm, that the PCS and the chronic pain affects like also my mental health and my social life. Mm. And they really got me the, sur- the surgery like super fast. Like after they eventually diagnosed me, it was just a matter of three weeks, which is really a good thing. Uh, in like the Polish conditions. And right. j- just to clarify, AVM, uh, ar- arteriovenous malformation is an abnormal tangle of blood vessels connecting arteries and veins, which disrupts normal blood flow and oxygen circulation, uh-huh. which whew, s- sounds n- not very fun either. Z- Zuzi, I-, I can't help but um, sit here thinking about like your experience in, in going to school and studying journalism and, and even going um, and getting a chance to uh, attend that conference at the New York Times. Um, I wonder how that has sort of informed your um, advocacy that you've done for yourself as a patient, mm. because uh, like the 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 way that you reach out to other hospitals and and sort of try to and connect with other doctors to um, to like figure out what's really going on in your body. Do, do you think that it's kind of like an investigative journalist trying to get to the fucking bottom of the of the of the crime yeah, that just yeah. happened that's in exactly the city? Exactly what you know? I've been yeah. thinking. I'm wondering if you feel that that's informed the way that you advocate for yourself. Uh, I actually do because I mean I've always been like super self confident and strong, and I feel like normal people would never handle it because it's like you need yeah. to really believe in yourself and like not second guess your thoughts when you have like hardly any support in your friends, family, like nobody believes that the pain has like a physical reason, reason like, you know, it's not only in your head, it's not like a mental thing. Mm, so this was hard. And I was also like, the doctors couldn't refuse me. I was like, I was so stubborn to get the diagnosis. <laughs> so also when I was in the hospital, I actually asked the head of the department to come to me and discuss the surgery. And he was like, why are you even asking? I don't have time. But he still came and, you know, he explained everything step by step. And he was like, we never actually do it. <laughs> yeah, that's very funny. Yeah, they're, they're getting that question. They're like, damn. Yeah, no yeah, one, she, she's thorough. No one yeah. ever No one ever. Is this that. the girl that they've been writing about across Poland as <laughs> yeah, like that yeah, huge yeah. advocate and change maker? Yeah, okay. you, what, right. can, you t- can you walk us through the surgery? Like, how do they, how do they treat uh, something like PCS? Uh, yeah, so it's like uh, you're awake all the time. There's like no anesthesia and no painkillers even. Wow. Uh, oh, my God. 
Yeah, so the worst thing was the mm, catheter that they insert into your bladder because your bladder needs to be empty all the time and oh, it was super painful. I and I was it. asking for some meds to kind of, you know, relax my muscles, but the nurses wouldn't give them to me. Oh. So I was there like, a, you know, like a drug addict begging for the medication. And I had it in for like four hours waiting for the surgery. And then we walked down and they like put you on a table and there's like a lot of, a lot of devices above you because they kind of need to scan your body first. Uh, and then they insert like contrast uh, to see your dilated veins. And this is actually the moment, it's called like a venogram when they see all your veins and everything is visible there. Like mm. it's much better than an MRI even. Um, and then they go in through your neck, like through a vine on your neck or through a vine on your groin. Is it oh, disgusting? my God. <laughs> I've heard of that before. I like, I like makes, it. Keep it, going. I've heard that before. Some people with who had like abdominal things where they go in through your neck. It makes me feel so It's so weird. wild to me that you're not getting any kind of like local anesthetic or like, like anything like that. Like that's... Did they go through your neck? Is that or did they go through your groin? Yeah, I would prefer them to go through the groin, but they went through my neck. Oh shit! And, <laughs> and it was funny because I was so dramatic, and you know, I was talking to the doctors all the time, and he was like, "Can you feel something?" And I was like, "I can feel a drip of blood going down my neck." And he was uh, like, "No, it's iodine." Oh <laughs> my god! It wasn't blood. <laughs> I mean, but also, like, what else were you feeling? I mean, did like, did do you? You know, they're inserting. I, I'm guessing some sort of, some sort of, uh, you know, tubing surgical that device. Sur surgical tubing that can go from your neck into a vein. It has to travel down to your, to your like uterus, right? It has to travel yeah, down. They're to your actually pelvic. called catheters. The things that they oh, the catheter. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I'm a fucking so, idiot. Mm, <laughs> they put them in and they kind of navigate it thanks to the imaging that they have. And like when they put it in your in the vine on your neck, they have like ultrasound to make sure that they do it like you know in the right place. Oh, so I wasn't really stressed about them doing it wrong because they performed the surgery like all the time, and it was the doctor that I asked for because I said that I was on the phone with him a few times and I kind of really trust <laughs> him and he's really understanding. So they gave me the doctor that I wanted. I you were like, like, I'm an investigative journalist and I've done my <laughs> I've research done my into research. this hospital. And I've been on that website that yeah. rates doctors, and I want the good guy. <laughs> hey, could you feel it, like, traveling from your neck all the way down, like, inside you? Or once it's, once it's in, you don't really feel it go down? I couldn't feel it going down, but I could feel the pain when they were sh shutting off the vines. So they were inserting, like, metal coils. In my case, it was quite a nice hospital, as it's, like, oh next to gosh. the university. So they they were platinum coils, so there's like a lower risk of allergy. And it's like, you know, my wharf is now bigger because I have platinum coils inside. So <laughs> I got like four platinum coils. Mm, so they put them inside and when the blood flow stops, you kind of can feel it and they don't give you any pain meds during oh the, the sphere. This thing, so I had like this pain in my back, in my lower back and in my, my abdomen also. And then they put like, in my uterine venous plexus, they put sclerosan, so like gel foam with kind of alcohol that also makes the vine shrink slow, vines shrink slowly. Oh my god! So that's this it. is and making me like, you know that feeling oh, when, it, when it, you can't make a fist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, it it's, I'm so squeamish right now just listening. It's about to this. the neck. It's the neck. Yeah, and it's, it's everything. The, and it's the it's the blood flow. Catheter. 
It's the platinum coils. You'd think after we've done this show for yeah, so fine. long that we'd that we'd have some type of resistance <laughs> built yeah, up to this. Yeah. I have none. I feel yeah. like this is the first time I'm ever hearing the story of somebody being somebody yeah. having something shoved down their neck for surgery, and, and it I, makes I, me feel yeah. weak. And I have a I have a snooze portion in my lip right now. Like I'm getting nicotine straight to my blood flow, and that usually <laughs> makes me lightheaded. And now I'm. Extra lightheaded. Oh my god, Jeremy just passed out. Zuzi, <laughs> <laughs> um, were were you in in Warsaw or um, you were in Poland when this was being done? Yes, I was in Poland, and it's actually funny because I was not in Warsaw. In Warsaw, I that's had the only one city of the I know. That's why I was just flexing my Polish. Yeah, I know uh, because it's the capital city. So I went there for like an <laughs> ultrasound for endometriosis when we thought that it might be endometriosis. You're right. Mm, so this is when actually the one of the gynecologists said that. I have like those buzzing vines and she referred me to a vascular surgeon. So that's the only thing I got done in Warsaw. And there are like two places, Warsaw and Wrocław, the only two cities where you can get this ultrasound, like special contrast gel inserted into your vagina. Mm, but I went to Lublin. So it's like a city uh, in Eastern Poland where actually nobody ever goes. So <laughs> yeah, because Eastern Poland is like less developed than Western Poland. Right, right. But they just have this great hospital and the great doctors who just deal with vascular issues. The well, only problem is they, they, they just don't supply the hospital with anesthetic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's usually anywhere else in the world. It's, a, yeah. it's an anesthetic free hospital. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's kind of like how it's kind of like gluten free, but for hospitals. Yeah. <laughs> Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. Zuzi, what what is healthcare like in Poland? I, I, I'm pretty sure you're the the first guest that we've had yeah, on the show yeah. from Poland, and uh, I'm really curious what the healthcare system is like there. So it's different than in the US and than here in the Netherlands because we've got like insurance and like you know there are public hospitals and like public doctors, but the queues are like super long, so mm. you can wait like two year two years for a neurologist for like the first appointment. So wow. there are also the private doctors and the whole private hospitals and you can get like private examinations. Like I paid for like the whole diagnostic process. If I didn't pay, I would probably still wait for the colonoscopy. So yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. the first thing that I did, because if you're not urgent, you just need to wait in the queue. And like even elderly people, it's, it's like so hard to get proper treatment in Poland. And if you go to those public doctors, they might even gaslight you more and yeah. look down on you. Yeah. Right. What, what was the colonoscopy for? Wait, the uh, colonoscopy? Did, yeah, yeah, it was, what, what, uh, what was like the, the guy who gaslight, gaslight me, the, the one, uh, the gastrologist, yeah. uh, he referred me to a colonoscopy and I don't know if he actually thought that it was needed. It was just expensive and a lot of money for him. So he was like, okay, do it. So. Did you did you have uh, I, I've heard colonoscopies uh, come with like crazy farts afterwards or or, or or maybe it's before it's like is it because they like did did they do they like pump you full of air or something like that and then you're just like 
just farting for days? No, no, I didn't have that. I just had like pain and discomfort in my abdomen. But I think it's because I also have had like an ovarian cyst at that time. So I, I always have like a lot of issues. But no, I didn't have that. You didn't Damn. have the farts, and maybe that's just that's a, just Jeremy. A, a, a that's just Western uh, culture thing. Jeremy's a Jeremy's secretly getting a <laughs> getting a colonoscopy soon, and he's just he's just yeah. making an ex- a, 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 a very premeditated excuse <laughs> for his gas. So coming back to the the actual treatment of the the PCS, um, you know, you're there. You've got the catheter in your neck all the way down to your pelvis. You're getting the coils. You're getting the the uh, the the gel. How long was that entire process, like from from admission to to getting out? So I was admitted like a day before the surgery, oh. and I mean it's not like actually a surgery; it's called embolization. Um, and then it was the other morning, and then on the third day they let me out of the hospital. So it's like really short. And I know that in the US you can actually get it like in one day. You just go in, and after a few hours you're out. But it's Whoa. actually better to get it done, like to stay in the hospital for the night because you need to stay like in a vertical position and not to, you know, to let the coils settle, not to have them moving inside your body. Yeah, that sounds is, better than having we, them move. Once you, once you have the surgery done, is it, I, I mean, is it like, oh, sweet, I don't have that problem anymore? Yeah. Or, or, or what's, what's the aftermath of uh, having surgery? Uh, so the best effect that, uh, you can get it's like 80% less pain it's never like a full relief mm, but what they didn't warn me about that but it gets much worse before it gets better oh, no. so in May I honestly I could barely walk like a few days after the surgery like the pain really kicked in so I honestly could barely walk and I could feel the coils in the places where they actually oh. put, you know it's like a metal object inside your body so it's yeah. normal that you have like inflammation you have fatigue like you're super tired and that that was really bad and when I get the got the COVID vaccine I got it like three weeks before uh, three weeks after my procedure so I still had the inflammation and like the inflammation doubled after oh, the vaccine no. so I could feel the coils again so I think it took like the entire May for me. I, the procedure was at the end of April and it took like the entire May um, for me to actually feel as good as I was feeling before the surgery because it was much worse. Yeah. And you know, there, there are actually people who don't find relief oh. and who actually got, get worse after embolization. It's oh like God. when you have other issues like vascular compressions, like nutcracker syndrome. And there are some women actually out there using wheelchairs as mobility aids because, you know, we have like our spines and our legs are healthy, but like walking hurts so much. So they use it as mobility aids sometimes, but it's not as bad in my case. And then in June, I was like suddenly feeling super well, much better. I mean, there was, there was still some pain and some swelling. But I was, I could see the improvement and like, I wanted to message my doctors, you know, be super optimistic. I was going to the gym. I was, you know, having a social life. And then from July, it has been honestly progressively worse. So I don't know if the surgery helped or, you know, when they shut off off the vines, like new vines develop. So maybe I already have like new varicose vines and we probably need to sort of get it checked. I, I've never heard of nutcracker syndrome until just now. I've and it sounds either. awful. Nutcracker syndrome is a rare vein compression disorder. 
It occurs when the arteries, uh, most often the abdomen's aorta and superior mesenteric artery, squeeze the left renal kidney vein. It can cause many symptoms in both children and adults, such as flank pain and blood in the urine. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, uh, and, and it's, um, it, well, we were, we were talking about pain. We had, um, we had a, uh, a guy in the podcast uh, probably about a month ago talking about pain and sort of like uh, the evolution of pain and what science pain is, pain. the science yeah. of pain and, what, and, and everything. And, and uh, he said that there are, you know, different types of pain. Um, and the worst kind of pain is, uh, is associated with, um, uh, with like a lack of blood flow. And so he, he said, you know, the, 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 the typical way that they study pain is they will get a bunch of people and they'll, um, have them hold something that gets, uh, like something steel that gets progressively hotter and they measure pain that way. But then he said, um, one of the, one of like the, the most intense way that they study pain is they will, um, I can't remember what it was. It, it was something where I think they put a, um, a blood pressure cuff Tough. on yeah. and then they make you do arm curls. And as you do arm curls, the blood, you, you get less and less blood flow, um, to the arm. And that is the most intense form of, of pain. And I have a very, I have a very small view into this type of pain because I ride bikes a lot. And when you ride a bike for a really long time, that's basically what ends up happening to your legs. And of everything that I've ever experienced in my life, pain-wise, broken bones, torn muscles, ligaments, whatever, it's, it is the most deeply uncomfortable thing that I've ever I, I would ra- I'd sometimes rather break a bone than go through the feeling that I have in my legs sometimes when I'm riding a bike because you, when you have that lack of blood flow, it is, it, it's, like an, it's like having an existential crisis. Mm. So when you talked about, like I, and, and I'm talking like I have like a 0.01% view into how you feel because those blood flow issues, like I can, I can very easily see why it was such a disruption to your mental health Mm -hmm. because that type of pain is special. Like it's, it's, it's next level. Yeah. Zuzi, I wanted to ask about that. Like we're, we're talking about, we're talking a lot about physical pain, but you've mentioned a few times now about the challenge that you've experienced with your mental health. Um, what's that been like for you? I mean, it's, uh, I think it's natural for chronically people to, experience like those mental health issues also and Mm -hmm. I always felt like this is something that you know I can omit because I'm so strong I'm so confident I'm like so successful despite all of my issues but it was just at some point you have this kind of burnout like you know all those tests coming back normal and you should be super happy and relieved when they come back normal but you're actually disappointed because if they don't find anything they yeah. won't help you. So exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was the stress. And also my family was like, I mean, I love my family and they, we were super close, but they were always kind of had this attitude. If it's not a deadly disease, it's fine. <laughs> it's like n- oh. not something like we should really care about. Yeah. So, and I also like kind of had the pressure from other people not to really talk about the illness that much. So honestly, barely anybody knew. Like at school, I never actually 
Polony teachers or, so, or something. And there's also this thing like the dilated veins, they kind of put pressure on your bladder. So I like have frequent urin- urination, like always on school trips or things. Mm. Like we would always need to stop because I needed to pee. And I was like, everybody knew that I was the one who needed to pee and to stop <laughs> the whole bus. And I'm so thankful that they always stopped when I needed. Mm. But I now know why, so... Did they ever yeah, give you? Uh, did they ever give you a sense of like how big your how big the veins dilate? I mean, it was uh, like wait, one of the gynecologists measured them. It was like seven point five millimeters uh, in my uterine venous plexus. So Whoa. I was asking the guy when they were doing the embolization, uh, which must have been pretty frustrating for him because he was trying to focus and I just kept asking questions. Uh, but anyways, uh, I think he said it would be like 12 millimeters in oh, the, like in the widest. Holy shit. Which that's, like, which, that's you know, I mean, I feel like anytime you say millimeters, it's like, oh, that's millimeters are small, <laughs> but not when there's 12 of them. Um, <laughs> and if you look down, <laughs> if you look down at your vein, like, you know, any vein on your body that you could see, I mean, it's probably like two or three millimeters. Maybe. So, if that. Like, Maybe. so we're talking like veins that are, I mean, you know, veins are of different size, but, um, you know, so uh, your vein is essentially probably like three to four times bigger than it's supposed to be. Yes. And for some women, it's actually even 18. It's like probably a maximum, but some women have it. Are, are they, so, so is that, so that's the that's the is that the origin of why they thought it might have been um, what was it VMA V AVM AVM um, uh, is that why they thought that it might be that because when those are when when the uh, when the veins are dilated that way they they kind of they're they're looking at them and going oh these could burst and this is this might be this condition uh, no it's because of like on the imaging uh, the you know. When you look like, uh, there was also like this reconstruction and you know, my uterine venous plexus, actually it was like all those huge vines tangled together. So Mm -hmm. it was pretty easy to mistake it for an IVM. Mm. And also I'm young and I've never been pregnant and I've never, you know, done like weightlifting or anything like that. Mm. So it's like pretty rare to have pelvic congestion syndrome because it mostly occurs in women who gave birth like a few times. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you're pregnant, there's like more pressure on the vines and then, then they dilate and it's like pretty normal. So it might be because of the genetics, but my mom doesn't have it. So nobody actually knows why I have it. And the doctors are not really very curious to find out. They just mm-hmm. gave me treatment and they're not looking any deeper. So how, how are you now? Like uh, you, you had the surgery in May, right? Yes. So... Uh, I recently moved to Amsterdam, so there's like, it's stressful for a normal person and for like a uh, person who's got a chronic illness, it's even more stressful. And as I said, stress increases my symptoms. Uh, So it's been pretty hard. And, you know, for the past months, uh, there was this pandemic and I was after the surgery, so I was not not very much socially active. So I'm kind of checking what my limits are and checking how much I can push them and how much I want to push them. Mm, but also, as I mentioned, like since July, I've been progressively worse again. So uh, mm. I sort of feel like it's starting again. And like in July, I felt like I might have an ovarian cyst and I actually had it. And it was like, I think, seven centimeters. So there might, you know, be pressure on the bladder and the rectum and stuff. So 
I was relieved, but then uh, this is this is disappeared and the symptoms are still there and I'm still like all swollen and painful uh, and get flare-ups like a few times a month. So mm. this is like a chronic issue that I will probably need to live with and I mm. might get the embolization again to put like more, more coils and more gel foam. I is that is that something you would do in Amsterdam? Uh, I think I will do it in Poland uh, because I kind of trust my doctors and yeah. really doctors all over the world suck at doing this thing. <laughs> like it's yeah. pretty rare, and it was only I think described twenty or thirty years ago. So it's not really like like the awareness is not that big mm-hmm. in the medical environment. So I would stick to my doctors and might go back to Poland for this and just go back here to Amsterdam when I get it done. Mm. Do you, uh, do you do anything for pain management? You know, do you take, do you, do you like whether that from the spectrum of, uh, like, uh, pharmaceutical treatment to, uh, I mean, you're in Amsterdam. There's lots of weed. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Amsterdam. What up? Uh, from the from pharmaceutical uh, interventions to you know like meditation mindfulness sort of things like anything. Yeah, I haven't tried weed yet, and I'm <laughs> not going to say if I am going to try it because my mom is going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> so that's a there's a chance. <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a possibility uh, since I'm in Amsterdam. Uh, that's but that's not the reason why I chose Amsterdam. Okay, let's sure make it, it clear. <laughs> hey, it's it's legal here. We're just kidding, too. mom. We're just kidding. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I I got a heating pad recently, and it sort of helps because mm-hmm. you know um, it helps relax the muscles, like, like when you get uh, like heat on your stomach. Mm. And then there are also ice packs and they like, you know, it's from one extreme to the other mm-hmm. because ice packs can help shrink your vines. So I mm. use ice packs also, but it's like, it is helpful, but not like really helpful. Like they, it's not like an yeah. instant relief. And like what helps is just being in a horizontal position. So not sitting or standing or doing like if, like strong physical exercises and mm-hmm. I can't do weightlifting because there, there's like a bigger risk of the vines getting dilated again. Mm-hmm. Mm, so I just lie as much as I can and kind of try to take my rest. Uh, I wear loose clothes because tight clothes are like really bad for the swelling. So I always wear dresses and this was a great excuse to <laughs> buy a whole bunch of dresses before leaving for Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was That's because great. of health issues. So I got a lot of them. <laughs> and also I will have two lectures online and just one seminar in person. So I can just be home in my bed in my tracksuit and make notes. Mm. Mm, so I think like adjusting my lifestyle, but I'm so glad that. Like my, I am able to work remotely and interview people like from home. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if it comes to pain meds, like most of the ones that are available without prescription, don't really help. Mm -hmm. And I tried opioids for something else once, but like I had like super bad nausea after that, and I don't think that I want to try them again. Mm. So I just kind of try, you know, to use those. those methods other than pain meds. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what, a good, mm-hmm. personally, I think that's a good idea. Zuzi, when you were talking about um, uh, promoting the book and speaking to younger kids and, and not really wanting to talk about uh, 
the struggles that you've been through, whether it's your illness or the mental health challenges that come with it. Um, uh, it, it sounded like you were kind of saying that like before I didn't want to do that. And then obviously you're sitting with us on this podcast today, sharing your story. Um, what is your, what, how, how has your perspective shifted about talking about your, uh, challenges that you face with uh, your illness? Yeah, actually, I'm a journalist, so I kind of, you know, my illness inspired me to go into medical journalism one day. because like you can do so much help, um, you know, raising awareness. So I did like a very good interview on endometriosis uh, in March this year. And I've also got an interview coming on pelvic congestion syndrome with one of my doctors, the one that I, I was, I actually thought was like a total asshole in the hospital because <laughs> we were kind of uh, discussing having kids. And I asked him um, if like the illness will return uh, if I have kids. And mm -hmm. he said that it, it's like a hundred, nearly a hundred percent sure that it will return. Wow. Um, and he was like, but is it a reason not to have kids? And like at the same time, he, he said, no. I said, yes. <laughs> and he was like, why is it a reason not to have kids? And I said that it was traumatic for me. Like, mm. I think I have some sort of medical trauma. And he said, you know, when you have this little girl come down to your bed in the morning, you're not going to think of the varicose vines. And I was like, you're, you don't really know. Like, you, you've never had that. And he said, I have three kids. I mean, I didn't give birth to them, but it's like super sweet. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, but like he's a great doctor, like world famous nearly for, um, promote, for treating PCS. So I still interviewed him even despite being like a pretty much of an asshole. <laughs> but I kind of grew to like his sense of humor. Yeah. I hope he doesn't listen to that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I wanted to say what inspires me to talk about the illness. Yeah. So uh, I'm this kind of person who like uh, understands English very well. So when I wanted to find out more about the illness, I would read like medical articles for doctors on the internet in English. And I sort of feel like uh, normal people would never do that. Like normal people would just give up on, or rely on the poor information that's there on the internet. So I kind of feel like uh, sharing my story in this podcast might be helpful for mm. some other women struggling with chronic pelvic pain who just got to the point when endometriosis and adenomyosis are excluded and they still have the pain and like, don't, don't see any reason for that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I also and want to inspire people, people to advocate for themselves because, you know, I'm here in Amsterdam just trying to have a normal life and to still reach out for my goals. And like, I wouldn't be here if I didn't advocate for myself that much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Zuzi, uh, I'm going to ask you a, a two-part question that we ask most of our guests. Um, what would you say is the biggest thing that PCS has taken away from you? Sort of needs to think of what it has taken away because I, I like got everything back already. Mm. Uh, but it has, it has definitely cost me a lot. And like, uh, maybe it's taught me to be more like to rely on myself. And I don't want to, I'm not sure if I want to say it like publicly because, you know, like I always kind of trusted my family like a hundred percent, like 200 percent. And when they sort of failed me at some point of my illness, mm. uh, I sort of got like more distant mm. and I, I mean, I know that it's painful for them if they ever hear it. Uh, but yeah, this, this is what it take, took away from me. And also 
like I think self-confidence at some point, I mean, I was always still confident, but um, at some point I like, I didn't even have dreams anymore. Like I didn't sort of dare to dream. I thought that I would never be able to travel again, especially after New York, mm. after how painful it was. Uh, and I sort of, there was this moment where <laughs> that's why I studied classics. Uh, like uh, there was this moment when I um, thought that, you know, I can't be a journalist anymore because it's like, it's a stressful job with a lot of pressure and it needs it to be like you're a hundred percent all the time. Mm. Uh, so I decided to go into classics, you know, started to be like this best kid in the Latin class. And uh, that's because I wanted to go for an academic career because I thought that I might need like a more peaceful life. But this is just not me. I prefer mm -hmm. to be myself and live with the pain than, you know, give up on my dreams. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you? I think compassion because I was never really... I mean, I was always compassionate, but I never really understood those issues, uh, like mental health issues especially, and kind of uh, experiencing all of this myself um, taught me to kind of be more gentle with people. And I think it's like it's a huge benefit for a journalist and like few people have this kind of compassion that I have now. Mm -hmm. Zuzi, I, uh, I, I really commend you for, for taking time out of your day today to sit down with us and, and share with, with us a little bit of um, insight into what it is that you've been through. I, I think that, you know, it's, uh, we have a lot of female listeners on this podcast and, and we've heard from a lot of those listeners about stories that are very similar to yours, people who are on this sort of journey trying to figure out what the fuck is going on with their, their chronic pelvic pain. And there are so many different avenues that, that one can take to kind of figure those things out. But to hear your story about how, how, you know, how resilient you are and, and also how, how um, proactive and, and, and like self-advocate forward you are with the way that you've, you've tackled this has been really inspiring. Mm -hmm. And I, I no doubt believe that, uh, that this conversation will for sure go on to mm -hmm. at least give someone some inspiration uh, towards, towards seeking out you know, the answers that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. I also just want to add, too, that um, your answer for what this has taken away from you, when you talk about um, your family, I, I don't think... Uh, I can understate how important it is for a lot of people to hear that. And it doesn't mean that you don't love your family the same amount and that they're not going to try to support you or make the right decisions for you. Um, it's like going forward in the future, but it's important for our families to know, um, when they haven't made the right decisions for us, at least from our perspective. And this is perhaps a really personal, um, thing for me too because I spent 15 years of my life um, not telling my dad about a time that he let me down in my life. And it took me a long time to bring up that um, experience with him. And I, hold, I held a lot of uh, resentment towards him for that, that moment. And so um, when I eventually did bring it up, it, it, I don't know how he took it necessarily, but I know how it made me feel. 
and it made me feel um, really empowered to be able to let him know what was coming between us. And like, it took me a long time to get there in my own processing of that, and it took me a long time to get there through going through uh, therapy and talking to my therapist about that. Um, but I think there's probably a lot of people who could benefit from hearing that too. So I just want to thank you for sharing that and bringing it up. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And regarding therapy, I, I did try uh, to see like a mental therapist uh, and only had like three meetings because at the third meeting, she, and I didn't have the diagnosis yet, I told her that it's probably endometriosis because that's what we found at that point. And, you know, even the therapist failed me because she was like, mm, okay, so I will just write it down. And she was like writing a lot of things. And I was like, what are you actually doing? And she said, I'm trying to write like, a, mm, you know, to kind of figure out when your psychosomatic system, symptoms uh, appear. And I was like, they are not like psychosomatic. <laughs> they, they are actually like, this is an illness. And she was like, if it's not seen on, on imaging, it might not be like, let's just assume that it's not. And I was like, you're not assuming that it's not. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like super, super frustrated. Like, felt like, like a very good therapist. She is like one of the best ones that I could get in my city. And she like had no idea how to work with. A yeah. Person. And again, just a, like a perfect example of how important it is to, to, to continue to like continue that search for a therapist that works for you, you know, yeah. like it's, it's, it's like, and for, uh, and for the right diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Also, so with, yeah. with therapists, like whether somebody's revered as being the best therapist in your city or whatever, it doesn't it, necessarily it, it, mean there a therapist is very individual. Yeah. Like yeah. somebody who's the best for a group of people might not be the best for you. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, Susie, thank you so much for taking time yeah, to you. sit down and, and chat with us today. This has been really, really fun. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And I love what you guys are doing. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks. Well, there you have it, folks. That was our conversation with Zuzi. Uh, big thank you to Zuzana. Uh, for taking time out of her day to chat with us. And a huge thank you to you, the listener, for doing the same. Uh, we are coming back at you every Wednesday, Friday, and following Monday with new episodes of Sick Boy Podcast. So if you are tuning in on Apple Podcast, leave a rating and review. Hit the follow button if you're uh, listening over on Spotify. If you want to watch our Feel Good Friday episodes over on YouTube, Head on over there, hit the subscribe button, knock the bell icon so you get notified when we put up new videos every week. And uh, just, you know, thanks overall for just being amazing, amazing people. We love you. And uh, that is going to wrap things up for us this week. Sick Boy Podcast is brought to you by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. Sound design comes at you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. Our theme music is from Take Part. And of course, uh, couldn't do any of this without Lauren Sankey, co-producer of the show. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.